Delivering SaaS products involves a lot more than just building the product. SaaS management involves customer relationship management, licensing, renewals, software visibility, and the general management of a technology portfolio. The company Blissfully helps businesses manage their SaaS products from within a complete IT platform with organization, automation, and security built in. The Blissfully platform offers a system of record for creating and maintaining a single source of truth for technology, as well as a workflows and automations feature for defining and executing consistent IT processes, and an IT collaboration feature, as well as security and compliance. These features come together to form a comprehensive IT management platform. If that still sounds confusing, then it will be explained soon. In this episode, we talk with Aaron White, who is a founder and CTO at Blissfully. Aaron was previously a co-founder and board member at Price Intelligently and worked at Venrock before that. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. A few announcements before we get started. One, if you like Clubhouse, subscribe to the Club for Software Daily on Clubhouse. It's just Software Daily, and we'll be doing some interesting Clubhouse sessions within the next few weeks. Uh, And two, if you are looking for a job... We are hiring a variety of roles. We're looking for a social media manager. We're looking for a graphic designer. And we're looking for writers. If you are interested in contributing content to Software Engineering Daily, or even if you're a podcaster and you're curious about how to get involved, we are looking for people with interesting backgrounds who can contribute to Software Engineering Daily. Uh, Again, mostly we're looking for social media help, and design help. But if you're a writer or a podcaster, we'd also love to hear from you. You can send me an email with your resume, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. That's jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Aaron, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'd like this show to be much in the direction of a case study. So I think what your company is doing is quite interesting, but I'm also intrigued by your perspectives on how to build infrastructure these days. So given that we're going to be thinking of this as sort of a case study, let's start with what you actually do. You run Blissfully.com. Explain what Blissfully does. Sure. So Blissfully is a SaaS management platform. And what we do is we help IT teams figure out all the different pieces of technology in use throughout the organization, which apps people are using, what you're spending money on, what you're not using but spending money on, who has access to what. And we create a unified system of record of all those technical relationships. And from there, that context informs just about everything IT operations might need. So whether you're hiring a new employee and trying to figure out how to rapidly get them into all the tools that their teams might imply, or if somebody's leaving and you need reverse access to any number of apps, or you're doing a security audit, a compliance process, or even just cleaning up your spend, uh, we help IT teams figure all that out. Can you give an example of the onboarding process and the day-to-day usage just so people have a better sense of what Blissfully does? Sure. Yeah. So in terms of day-to-day usage, I think the first thing is just how would you set up a, a tool like ours? We integrate to all of your different back office systems. So G Suite, Microsoft 365, Okta, OneLogin, you name it, we plug into it. We pull the data in to create that that system of record. And then from there, you can use us to answer any questions you might have. But if we're talking about employee onboarding, for instance, let's say you're bringing a new engineer into an organization, right? So they're going to be part of the all-employees team. They'll be part of engineering. Maybe they're part of the SF office or maybe they're a remote worker. 
you would select those things in our tool. We would figure out all the various applications those relationships would imply. And then we would spin up a unified workflow that combines the things that humans need to do to get that person up to speed, things that new hire needs to do themselves, as well as things that automations can get done for you into one spot and then follow up with everything until it gets done. So whether that's provisioning people into GitHub, Figma, Slack, Zoom, all these different apps, we can track the progress of all those and make sure that you know the person is uh, deployed successfully. Like, let's take the example of onboarding somebody and giving them the permissions into Figma. Does Figma give you all like the API hooks and stuff that you need to understand the user's progress along the way of of being of being listed as an as an enterprise member or do you have to like reverse engineer some of that oh man yeah this is this is a fascinating question in fact interestingly to your example with figma i was just looking at this this morning it is really complicated and i think it, it, it just to back up before i answer figma specifically the reason saas management platforms exist is because the number of tools that organizations use has just exploded over the last the last several years, certainly the last decade. And you're in a world where everybody in the org can kind of pick and choose what they want to use and bring that into the team, whether or not IT is even aware of it. So it's just very complicated in terms of service area. And then even as you get into per application concerns, like we're talking about with Figma here, it's extremely complicated. So actually Figma, they support provisioning users via SKIM, which is a standard enterprise protocol for creating users. It typically works behind an identity provider like Okta or OneLogin. And when you create a a user in in Okta or OneLogin, you can have that synchronized and create a user in Figma. Interestingly enough, even when you have that set up for Figma, it doesn't necessarily mean that the user gets the right permissions. Someone still has to go in manually afterwards and make sure that that user is set up correctly to the various teams, boards, and have the set roles that they need. So, you know, part of our value proposition is we will automate what we can, but I think people would be shocked by how little is truly automatable. But the real value we have is that since we can track all the various app admins or app owners and kind of coordinate and orchestrate the more human element across all this, because, you know, a a standard organization probably is using hundreds of apps. And you can only automate so many of them. And so you still have a lot of work to coordinate beyond that. So it's a mess for sure. And you know that's one of the reasons that our, our platform exists is because you just really have to keep uh, kind of constant tabs on what's really happening inside of your org from a, a technical perspective. You can steer me here a little bit because I'm certainly happy to talk at depth, but it, it does get very complicated very quickly. You know, on and offboarding is just one thing that we help folks with. But really, it's making sure that they have one system to understand what all the apps are, what the relationships are, which ones are currently automated, which ones are going to be automated, which ones can't be automated, but who's responsible for them as an individual. You know, it's it's a lot to it's a lot for an organization to deal with. Yeah, and I think we'll we'll dance around uh, this subject matter. I'd love to know a little bit about the MVP for Blissfully, like when you when you originally went to market because. If we're talking here about this platform that helps you with onboarding and offboarding and user management of all these different third-party applications, that's a tall order for a initial product. So can you tell me what the initial product was when you felt comfortable going to market? And then we can talk maybe about the architecture of that first product. 
Sure, that's uh, I'd be happy to. First product, actually, when when my co-founder and I got started, originally we were going to be an MSP, a managed service provider. So we would offer our expertise in setting up technical systems to make sure that organizations were you know running efficiently and getting the most leverage. And what we found was when we were trying to sell those services either to customers we had just won because they believed our vision, or when we were trying to articulate what we would do for prospects, we ran into the same problem over and over, which is if you're going to tell someone you're going to help them with their technology, you have to know what their technology is. And so we'd ask our customers, potential customers, what is it you're using? You know, What are your employees using? And universally, the answer was, we're not really sure, <laughs> which is kind of shocking to hear, right? Like, we're not really sure. What do you mean you're not sure? You, of course, you need to know what software makes up your organization. How do you have continuity? How do you know your spend? How do you manage security? So the very first version of the product was designed to answer those questions, to tell you what you were using so that we could provide you better service. And so the very initial MVP was a Google Marketplace uh, application, which still exists today, actually, uh, although it's much more sophisticated than it was back then, that you would install and in a couple of clicks would automatically start ferreting out several pieces of information. Who are the people in your organization? What apps have they ever signed into using Google OAuth or Google SAML? And we would even find invoice and receipt emails from known SaaS vendors. And in about 60 seconds, and you would watch this stream in on your screen, you would start seeing all the applications in use in your organization, who was using them, what you were paying, when you last used them, or if the billing owner had left the company you know, six months ago, we would surface all that for you. And so it ended up being this really impactful, high-value list of that technology and those relationships. What was interesting when we launched that MVP is that I got five friendly companies to install it, give me feedback. And then the next week, it was another 10 installed it. And then the week after that, it was another 20. And so we just had really rapid growth because it turned out most companies weren't really sure what their inventory of software was. And at that point, we realized, you know what, forget the services that we were going to provide. Really, we're a software company. This needs to be a product that the world uh, has access to. And so my co-founder and I doubled down on it. We raised a small pre-seed round. We built a team and, and we got to work building you know, the real version of that software. But the MVP took us about two and a half months to build. Um, it was just him and I coding it. He knows a little bit of Ruby and CSS, enough to be dangerous. So mostly it was me doing the, the backend coding. And the initial stack was using AWS Lambda, which was very new at the time. This is about four or five years ago, uh, as well as GraphQL and Elm. And thankfully, those particular technical choices have withstood the test of time and the platform still based on them today, uh, although our understanding of them has improved quite a bit. But it was a really fun experience doing what I like to refer to with my team as lightning bolting a solution up. The power of an MVP is you get to just strip down everything and focus on delivering value to your, your user as fast as possible, both from a development timeline and from a product experience. And it really allows you to, to you know, focus in such an incredible way. So that was a very fun time, obviously. The technology choices there are a little bit surprising particularly Elm, going all in on Lambda makes makes sense to me. Going all in on TypeScript makes sense. But Elm is, for people who don't know, like a scarcely used functional front-end programming language. Why would you choose Elm? Yeah, it's uh, let's call it boutique. <laughs> so I am... Well, we can get into my my technical worldview. 
you know, I'm predisposed to functional statically typed programming languages. I will talk at great length if anybody gives me the opportunity and maybe you will on, on why uh, I have that preference. But what it, you know, boiling it down, what it does is by removing type errors from the runtime, by removing state management, you really just eliminate entire classes of errors from the possibility space. And so that means that the code you're writing is necessarily more correct at the other end, but more meaningful as you're writing it. You're not doing a lot of, you know, extraneous stuff to protect yourself against bizarre situations that it's hard to prepare for. For me, you know, as a one person MVP author, I was trying to choose technologies that gave me the absolute most leverage. And here was something that could eliminate all these various problems up front. I was going to lean all into that. And I found that it was actually highly efficient for me to produce an MVP application using Elm. Now, I think the question is, would that be the front-end technology choice for a company as we grew it over time? And that actually was less clear to me, right? So for an MVP, absolutely. It means that I'm not dealing with null reference exceptions, casting errors, you know, undefines and properties not found, state management issues, you know, all that was just gone, which is great. But are there enough developers that understand Elm in the ecosystem? Are there enough libraries that we can, you know, leverage or we have to be writing everything from scratch? At the MVP stage, uh, that wasn't really a concern. Obviously, as we try to transition the code to a longer lived, you know, actual stable project, that was a very real question. And, you know, I don't know that I went into it thinking that it would be answered one way or another. You know, I think it has absolutely withstood the test of time for us. And we've been able to build a fantastically amazing team around it. But that was the that was the calculus for the MVP. And, you know, it paid off then. And, and fortunately, it still paid off uh, even after that. If you'd like, I can talk about why kind of the rubric behind some of these choices, right? Please do. We should mention real quick, you are an experienced entrepreneur. Like you built a number of companies. And so, you know, people listening who might think of this as a complete novelty choice, there must be some reasoning behind it. Absolutely. Let me get into a little bit of my philosophy now. So I've worked on any number of startups. So one of the, you know, the first five people at RunKeeper helping move and scale them into the cloud. I made an animation startup way back in the day that got half a million kids using it. My co-founder and I, this is actually our second company together. Before that, we launched an ed tech uh, company, venture backed. I helped start a company called Price Intelligently uh, and actually wrote the first version of that product uh, that's, you know, doing quite well in an independent company today blissfully, obviously. The couple of guiding philosophies that I have are one, I mentioned lightning bolt as fast as humanly possible to value at all costs. Uh, I can come back to that. That's more of a development process and a mindset than anything else. Two is if you can eliminate entire classes of concerns from the things you do and let the machines do the things that humans would otherwise have to, you're taking a huge, massive leap ahead. And really all technology is designed to give you that kind of leverage. So with Elm, you know, imagine never having to reason about whether something is null or not. It's just not possible in Elm. Uh, the language is designed in such a way uh, as to never have that be possible in the runtime. It's sort of provably guaranteed by the compiler. That's a huge win, right? You're spending zero time doing something to mitigate pure problems. You know, and you can focus really on what you have to do. And and I would make that claim of all typed programming languages, especially the highly statically typed ones, over dynamic languages without a type system, 
right? You know, the difference between what you can express in a language with a type system versus something you can express in a language without a type system, you can make things that don't make sense in languages without type systems, right? Like they're both equivalent. You could write software in either of them. That's that, you know, we, we know that's provably true. There, there's nothing you can write in one language you couldn't fundamentally write in another. But the difference is you can write nonsensical things in languages that don't have type systems. And so when you kind of look at it through that perspective, it's like, well, why would we do that to ourselves? Why would we allow that to be a possibility? And I think the historical answer is, look, programming has kind of been both a little bit of CS, but a lot of kind of engineering and and hobby creation of tools and languages. We've just watched this industry evolve for years and years going through dynamic language after dynamic language. And I don't think it's any surprise that in, you know, 2021, TypeScript is on the rise. Python is getting a type system. You know, Ruby has flavors of it that have type systems. Certainly the .NET ecosystem has them. Java's had them forever. It's getting more sophisticated. I think the trend line has been towards letting the computer help you eliminate entire classes of problems that just shouldn't be possible. You know, at the language level, that's why I think some of these choices are, they're not flippant. They're actually highly meaningful. And, you know, the same on our back end, right? The, the calculus for why would you use Lambda? Well, to me, that's a really simple, straightforward one, which is think of anything that your company might do operationally that other companies are also doing in some sense is wasted effort, right? It's not unique to your product or your value proposition, right? It's a pure tax. And so when I look at what it takes to manage and maintain EC2 fleets or Kubernetes clusters, that's not specific to your product, right? That is something that every company that uses those technologies has to engage with. Well, the advantage of doing something with Lambda, and, and you know, let's set aside for a second kind of the bleeding edgeness of it or not, uh, it eliminates an entire class of you know, operational concerns. I'm not worried about health checks and failover uh, and patching uh, of operating systems or container technologies. You know, that's all handled by the layer of AWS now. So from a leverage standpoint, it's a massive win, uh, really letting our team focus on you know, what our product is. Now, obviously, there's still DevOps stuff that we do, but assuredly, it's much less than you know, if we were maintaining a cluster. So I think when you're choosing technologies, all those decisions about which tech you adopt and which class of problems that tech just totally obviates is hugely meaningful for leverage. And, you know, it's a fun one to tease out each and every one of those. I have similar feelings with GraphQL versus, um, you know, your more typical, you know, REST-based JSON API. You know, these choices have added up for us such that, you know, our relatively small team has been able to make a very wide and deep product. And, you know, that's just been a fantastic feeling. And, you know, to your point, this isn't my first (laughs) rodeo building uh, software companies. I have made mistakes. I have gone down paths where I over-indexed on the technology and it came back to bite me, or I under-indexed on it and we didn't get the leverage we needed. You know, and it takes a little bit of honing over time to figure out where those lines actually are. Um, but you know, if you find them, it's it's pretty great. I'm bought in to what you're saying. Your stack is TypeScript, Elm, GraphQL, Lambda, uh, I assume other serverless stuff, maybe step functions or things like that. Um, and one thing I, I'm curious about exploring is particularly on the backend side, the technical debt and the technical challenges that come with a serverless focus. Because, you know, from my point of view, like, you know, the game is over, 
if you can go all in on serverless, you absolutely should. You were introduced to me by Troy Good over at Courier. You know, I had this conversation with him like a little more than a year ago, just like he, you know, his his company's entirely serverless. Um, they're an infrastructure company. And basically it's like if you can be serverless, you should. But I'd I'd love to know what cost does that come? Like what are the penalties for going all in on serverless? What are the the back end sources of technical debt? That's great. So you're saying there's no magic bullets that just give you pure upside? Apparently not. <laughs> um, apparently not. Well, I'm, I'm still looking for them. Yes, there are costs to going serverless. We definitely paid them along the way and even now continue to pay them. Think, uh, I believe, and I think I've seen that it's a lot less, but they are there. So in the earliest days for us when we were adopting serverless, the real challenge for us was understanding where to draw the lines. Um, and I don't think this is surprising given any backend technology choice, but you know, for serverless in particular, what is a function? Like how much should a single function do? And should it just do one thing or should it be parameterized and be able to do kind of multiple things? Do you divide functions up by functional area of your product, by repo, uh, by some other set of concerns? Just figuring out where to draw the lines and split how code is uh, developed and deployed is a non-obvious question. So we have definitely explored all all possible variations of this, from tiny functions that do barely anything to you know monolithic functions that do almost everything, right? And we, got, for instance, you know we have hundreds of, of serverless functions. Uh, some are hyper focused. You know, take some JSON and statically transform it, spit JSON out, right? Uh, and then you've got something more like our API, which is largely self-contained in a single Lambda, which you could argue is just, you know, overly large. And I wouldn't, you know, I'd have trouble defending that. So that's one real concern is just where do you draw the lines? Uh, and that has a lot of implications for the development process, for ops, et cetera. The next set of concerns that we ran into, you know, are, are how do you coordinate all your various lambdas, you need to start becoming a master of figuring out when to fan out, when to fan in, which tools you use to coordinate them. So are you going to do one lambda, you know, invokes the next lambda? Are you going to buffer those two things with the queue? Uh, are you going to use uh, SNS instead maybe to trigger listeners on some more pub sub model? Should it be a kinesis stream? Should it be using step functions to coordinate these lambdas? And there's no obvious answer for any of those questions either. You know, you kind of have to look at the shape of the data, the rate of the data, the managerial pros and cons to each of those approaches to try to figure out how those things ought to get stitched together. And I think in the earliest days of pure serverless companies, there was just very little writing out there. So there was not a lot of community knowledge to draw on to figure out how to start dividing those lines. Going forward, I think there are still a lot of these same challenges ahead of us as we start to get more sophisticated in terms of you know multiple teams working on different things, making sure they can't step on each other's toes, uptime uh, of each lambda. You can kind of think of each as a microservice, and, and uptime here I don't mean necessarily you know is it available. It's it's almost guaranteed to be at least available, but you know as code changes over time you need to sunset lambdas for one reason or another that has implications to any other number of lambdas. So you kind of have that microservices challenge all over again. So there are very real concerns. The one kind of North Star for me, if I were to look 10 years ahead and say, well, how do I think this is all going to evolve on the back end? I would look to something more 
like a single programming language that allows you to author a, a backend and the act of compiling it figures out how to split that across any number of services. So if you imagine a programming language, like let's take TypeScript, for example, and instead of just having array.map, you have array.parallel map, where the parallel in this case means split out each mapping operation over as many lambdas as you need to, to achieve kind of hyperscale, right? I think what's going to happen is you're going to see more of the infrastructure and code keep merging until you get to a single language that manages all of these questions. And at that point, using the right patterns becomes a lot easier because you're talking about code and infrastructure in the same breadth, as opposed to two sort of totally separate things. And there are some bold companies going down that path today. Like, I don't know if you've gotten a chance to see Unison Web, but that's essentially what they're trying to build is a single programming language that also encompasses infrastructure. And Dark. And Dark also, right? And Dark. Yeah, exactly. Right. Extremely Dark has an even bolder vision, which is to not just do the back end, but the entire deployment model, the coding environment, the language. But yeah, those are probably the two products and companies that I think are looking towards more of the end game while the rest of us kind of inch there. But if I look at my own code base through that lens, that kind of helps maybe answer some of these questions around how you might think about splitting your code uh, and when it makes sense and when it might not. What are the infrastructure choices that you've made outside of just Lambda? What are the other pieces of infrastructure you build off of or the other um, monitoring tools, whatever, whatever other tools you can share? So I think we've got a fairly an otherwise fairly vanilla AWS uh, application. Uh, so I think what I'm about to mention to you will not shock anybody, but you know we have an Aurora RDS cluster. Uh, we use copious SQS queues. We use S3 to store temporary data. We have a Redshift cluster to handle analytics. Uh, you know we use step functions, which are just fantastic for coordinating you know kind of long lived operations using lambdas. I think that's all great and fantastic. In terms of monitoring, you know, we lean heavy into CloudWatch and CloudMetrics. There are, of course, you know, entire companies dedicated to providing better UIs <laughs> to your logging and metrics than what you get from AWS. And some of them are fantastic. We also use Datadog to do some of our uh, application metrics. But otherwise, I think it's fairly, fairly vanilla uh, in terms of our infrastructure. Revisiting the uh, company side of things. What has been your strategic expansion into supporting different enterprise use cases? Like, take me from your MVP today and how you chose the product expansion. Uh, that's a great question. So the MVP was very much focused on telling you what you didn't know, right? You didn't know these things. We're going to tell them to you. And as we started Getting that into the hands of more teams, uh, more IT folks, you know, around uh, around the ecosystem, you start learning about the other problems they have. Like, why do you care that there are things you didn't know about? Right? It's sort of, you know, the next the next part of the question. Naturally, like you only care to uncover the software because you're trying to do X. Well, what is X? Uh, X can be I need to manage costs. Uh, it can be I need to understand my security footprint. I need to understand my compliance posture uh, or my GDPR, you know, um, my ability to even execute on GDPR if a customer were to ask me. 
or I need to understand what these things are so I can efficiently, you know, get people in and out of them or maintain operational continuity. There are all these different reasons people want that data. So once we started giving them the data, uh, one wonderful thing about B2B, and I've done, you know, I've done consumer, I've done education, you know, I've done some B2B. A wonderful thing about B2B is that your customers and your potential customers are very clear about what it is they want. So we started hearing all those use cases. I want to be compliant. I want to save money. I want to more efficiently on and off board employees. And from there, I think what you do is you look at, well, where can we be most helpful, right? Where does this data set really shine and how can our software do more for those folks? And strategically for us, what we discovered as we went was there's going to be three layers to our product. The system of record, getting all the data in one spot and making sense of it, deduping it, merging it, presenting it in a really helpful way. A workflow layer for a variety of use cases, you know, everything I just described you're trying to accomplish. If our data can help you accomplish it better, then our data ought to be able to set the project plan for you dynamically. So we knew we were going to have a workflow layer. And then the last thing that we also knew is that fundamentally for all these various concerns, given how decentralized IT decisions are, how apps are adopted, there's no future in which an IT product does not involve everybody in the company in some capacity. So we need an employee portal experience, which is to say, you know, if we need to ask you, hey, which of these tools you're still using, we need an ability to, to contact each employee in your organization to get those data points from them to help IT do their job better. Again, because not all of it can be automated, certainly not sentiment, but, you know, even a long tail of tools can't be automated. So we started building uh, through that stack of those three layers, adding the most value uh, that we could and kind of prioritizing that way. And so for us, you know, I could get into the the specifics of each of those things that we did, but the overall strategy was deliver people the best source of truth they have never had before, uh, then use that truth to dynamically help them accomplish the projects at hand and involve the company uh, as necessary because, you know, it's just something you have to do in, in today's day and age. On the competitive front, I don't know this area as well as a lot of other infrastructure areas. I think one of the competitors that comes to mind is is Rippling. Am I right about that? Is that the domain that you're playing in? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think we definitely have direct competitors. So there are the Intellos, Tories, Productive, Xylos. There's a number of folks who have sprung up to do SaaS management. There are some IT uh, companies, um, for instance, Better Cloud, that provides a lot of IT automations that has started trying to offer SaaS management as well. And then there are adjacent companies who I think our vision is just very similar to, uh, like Rippling, right? And so, you know, I think maybe your audience hopefully knows Rippling, but if not, they are company started designed to do HR plus IT. It's actually started by the founder of Zenefits. This is his second go around at this. So there's a lot of similarities there. And their essential view is if you know the truth of, you know, who's in the company and what the team layout looks like. Then onboarding a new employee from you know payroll through benefits through you know software and, and even devices, it kind of all flows naturally. Rippling tends to serve companies smaller than us, where a single decision to address HR sets of concerns alongside IT concerns makes sense. But as you get into larger companies, that breaks down. You know, it's very hard to imagine one product that both perfectly satisfies the needs of IT and perfectly satisfies satisfies the needs of HR. 
And so we tend to play more upmarket than Rippling. At the super scale end, you maybe have a company like ServiceNow, which you know is one of those like dramatically large companies. Very few people seem to have heard of outside of the industry, but they're you know they're massive. They serve you know giant companies of the world. Uh, you know I'm not sure these exact customers, but think the WalMarts that you know WalMarts, the Toyotas, and you know they've been doing it for decades. And it's very similar in a way, right? They have one data model, one platform, many use cases. That's their one of their kind of slogans. Because you know, managing this stuff is just very complicated, and I think kind of we're all sort of uh, siblings in this, in that it's all very complicated. Whether you're a you know sub 100 person size rippling consumer, uh, someone using blissfully in sort of the mid market, maybe you're using ServiceNow at the largest end. All these companies have similar problems because the rise of software has just been so dramatic and powerful that it just creates the need to have these products that help you wrangle it all. And is this a, like a technology category that basically every large company wants? Well, I'm biased. I hope so. <laughs> like, I hope that the value we're offering is something that people want. I think the answer is going to have to be yes uh, for a couple of reasons. One is... All the data we have and that other players have suggests that the rise of software is not going to slow down. And in fact, here's an interesting stat for you. The top three expenditures for companies traditionally are payroll, your lease, and software. And in the post-COVID age, number two and three there just flipped, right? With software taking sort of the, the second position for many companies at this point. It's probably not hard to imagine a future where this starts rivaling even payroll. Right, but that's that's a different conversation. So you know, when you look at the rise of software and the explosion of niche tools, so much of your company's dollars uh, are going to software, and just the num the sheer number of applications is going up. That if you care at all about leverage, efficiency, all these things, you're going to need to have a great understanding, and it's not something a human can deliver on. And you know, no slight to my my fellow people. It's just if you're trying to maintain a spreadsheet of this, yes, you may be able to, for a brief moment in time, nail the exact vendors that you use by laboriously surveying all the various tools, data points, you know, people. But the moment you complete that list, it's immediately out of date, uh, which means it wasn't a great use of your time. And that doesn't even get into, well, who are all the users of those applications? How much do we spend on that? It's just it's far too much data for people to manually maintain. And then on the other end of pressures... You've got the rise of various uh, security standards, right? So let's take SOC. SOC two is kind of the compliance craze that's sweeping the B two B nation. You know, every company wants to know that their vendors are some minimum level of responsible with their data, their security practices, etc., so that you know there won't be some massive leak or some discontinuity of service. And so we've all kind of picked a few of these standards that are becoming frankly table stakes for B2B companies. You know, if you're looking at one vendor or another and you've got one that has clearly invested in security and compliance, it makes it a lot easier to go with that vendor because you know that they care about the same things you do. And that sort of spreads virally, right? Like the moment you start caring about it, then other vendors who aren't winning your business, they need to care about it. Then in order for them to deliver on it, their vendors have to care about it as well. So that's spreading rapidly through the B2B ecosystem. I don't think that's going to slow down at all. I think it's only going to accelerate. Other things like you know data privacy for consumers, I mentioned GDPR earlier, that's another one of those things that matter. And so 
understanding your vendors and their investments and then managing how you collect that data. Or if you use it blissfully, we'll bring that to the table. We already have all that data uh, on most of your vendors. This kind of management, I think, becomes table stakes for companies that use a lot of software. And the data suggests that all companies are going to use a lot of software. The number of integrations that you must have to build is just going to grow and grow and grow and grow over time. What's your strategy for managing those in a sustainable fashion? Uh, This is a great question. Um, We actually went through a major project last year to ensure that as we keep delivering integrations to our customers, our ability to maintain them is only getting better and better. And so here I, I would point at a few things. Number one, we are big believers in type systems, as I mentioned before, which means we've got a lot of great interface definitions under the hood that we know that if we build to that interface and the functionality is correct, that integration will seamlessly fit into all the downstream value that our product can leverage that data to provide. So we take a lot of time to get our domain modeling right so that we know exactly when we're looking at a new app to integrate all the various interfaces we want it to support. And then if we build that, we feel confident all the downstream systems work. So standardizing how different data sources or automation targets seamlessly fit into your infrastructure so that you're only making decisions on the edges is incredibly important. Um, So we spend a lot of time doing that. Next, you get into actually authoring those. So we've spent a lot of time with things like smart code generation, and really isolated testing environments so that we can very rapidly spin up these new integrations and test them in isolation before exposing our system to them. And then thirdly, there's an operational concern to all this, which is, you know, once you've got all these integrations running, how do you manage them? How do you report errors both to your dev team or your ops team, to your customers when they can't be solved automatically uh, by our system? And there, again, we've taken standard interfaces, this time in the form of step functions, such that all of our integrations are managed by the exact same set of operational code, so that all that error handling, recovery, time of day, rate limiting is wholly handled by one system. And so we've invested over and over and over in our leverage to be able to author integration after integration after integration, precisely because it's going to take hundreds and I don't think we'll ever stop building integrations. It's sort of the, the name of the game to service our customers in the best way. So yeah, we've, we've invested a lot to give our small team just an incredible amount of leverage. How many people you got working for you now? So uh, on the engineering team, we're 10 people. And I'm both uh, proud to share that because I think this team has done a lot. Uh, and also because we're hiring. So if anybody's listening... Uh, you know, of course, please reach out to me if any of this sounds interesting. The split is about two-thirds back-end engineers, one-third front-end engineers, and it's a fully distributed team. Uh, we actually started sort of 50-50, you know, on-prem and remote, and over the course of just finding great talent to work with and certainly the pandemic accelerating some of that, uh, we've leaned into, you know, a fully remote engineering culture. So we have folks in Europe, we have folks in the West Coast, the Midwest, the Northeast, the I don't think we have the Southwest yet, but we could. So it's been a small team, but it's been a highly efficient team. Um, and I'm, I'm very proud of the work they've done. So what's the division of labor across the team? Yeah. So it's funny. When I hire, I tend to try to hire for a couple of different attributes. Number one is product thinking. 
my assertion is that engineers are product people with a much kind of more technically narrow focus. But if you're dealing with the domain and you're trying to generate outcomes for customers, you are in fact a product person. So I tend to try to hire people that have product sense, whether they're going to do front end or back end. Um, all of it matters. You're making decisions constantly. And if you're looking for folks like that, you actually tend to find more um, full stack curious, if not outright capable folks, because they're interested in delivering value to customers and they follow that value creation, whether it takes them from database management through API design through the front end. Uh, so while the team split, maybe two thirds back end engineers and one third uh, front end engineers, people cross that boundary all the time in pursuit of delivering the feature that you know they're they're responsible for, their pods responsible for. Um, and so there's no really hard divisions. There's more preferences and areas of expertise. But it's been exciting to watch people kind of push their own technical skill set in order to accomplish you know something unique. Let's zoom out a bit. Tell me about your vision for how the company unfolds over the next five to 10 years. Great question. Well, you know, we serve hundreds of customers today, uh, which I'm very proud of. And I hope that's thousands of customers over the next couple of years. So, you know, just from a number of companies we're able to help, certainly that's, you know, uh, that's up there. In terms of the impact that I'd like this organization to have, I would like folks to realize that if you have a platform for IT uh, that can fundamentally help you accomplish your goals and turn how we think about IT away from being a cost center into a point of organization-wide leverage, that would be a huge spiritual win. So, you know, I think classically, if you look at how, you know, some companies at least have viewed IT, it's it's cost center, right? It's a cost of doing business as a tax. You need people to help manage the technology, but they're just there to kind of keep the engine greased and working, maybe with you know some sort of bare minimum level of responsibility. And I think that's a little unfortunate, you know that that kind of forgets the fact that ultimately every person in the organization that you hire is providing leverage, and technology provides each of those folks leverage in turn. Like that's the whole point of it. And so, you know, what a, a real win for this company over the long haul would be helping folks really realize and demonstrate and get great value from the fact that a well-run IT organization empowers everybody throughout the company to provide your organization just far more leverage and impact on the world, whatever your mission is. That's how Blissfully succeeds is we help companies empower people through technology in a very real way, not as a catchphrase, but, you know, day to day, you always have access to, you know, what helps you do your job better. And we're helping companies realize that. What are the biggest technical challenges that stand in your way? And I guess business challenges as well. Give me a perspective for what stands in your way. Yeah, well, uh, I think from a a business slash technical challenge, and, and we talked about this earlier, is just that the number of applications and the diversity of sophistication of applications is all over the map. There's thousands and thousands of apps. Uh, new ones are getting created all the time for every niche, and they're not all created equal. Some uh, have APIs, some don't. Some support single sign-on, some don't. Some you know support automatic provisioning, others won't. When you start looking at all the various mechanisms these tools have to allow themselves to be managed or that make it resistant to manage them, 
it is just very hard to wrangle that chaotic and that diverse of an ecosystem into a single platform. So I think this is both a, a real challenge we have. It's certainly a very real challenge for our customers in a world where a blissfully doesn't exist. And, and and kind of like interestingly, I mean, maybe intuitively or counterintuitively, depending on your perspective, the harder it is, it's sort of the more meaningful our work becomes, right? Because as an individual company, you'd have no hope. Uh, and so you need a, a single organization to invest in getting all of that under control. That makes our job very tough from a technical perspective, a you know, a business, you know, relationship to all these various different entities as we try to, you know, do our best. As it's just very complicated. And I think we are committed to the mission. We enjoy our success when we have it. We get frustrated when we can't go fast enough or you know, when we suffer a setback trying to deliver something unique. But I think that diversity of the ecosystem technically is the same reason people value us. And it's the same thing that makes doing what we do just insanely challenging. Can you tell me any other unconventional infrastructure decisions you've made? Well, there are a few things that we've built internally that we get a lot of use from that are powerful. And so I don't know if they're unconventional, but there are more things that I hope people would would give a go. So, you know, we practice continuous continuous testing, continuous deployment, but we've tried to bring the robots in even earlier uh, into our development process. So, you know, I mentioned earlier, actually, there's a great quote by Agent Smith in The Matrix, if anybody's a fan, which is never send a, a human to do a machine's job. That's actually uh, a phrase we've used internally. Our chief architect, Jacob, clued me into it. But for instance, if you're ever doing a PR review and you are watching your team give the same feedback uh, over any number of PRs, why are we having humans provide that feedback? Where you have to ask yourself, is that useful? Is that a good use of their time? Or should they be focusing on higher level issues of code quality and organizational strategy? So we use a great tool called DangerJS, uh, if you're familiar with it, which allows you to code up rules all your PRs are subject to. So whether it's splitting out a migration from a code change, you know, that's one of our policies here. You can't ship the two simultaneously. They need to be separated. We're not unique in that, but we have the bots enforce that. Or if you fail to you know, check for certain conditions on the back end, or certain you know, database schema changes are being proposed, the bots will automatically flag past operational issues to you in that moment in time. And we don't always have those issues serviced in the PRs. There's not like a static checklist. People get fatigued. They stop paying attention. So we have our bots strategically guide us as we go, and we're constantly adding that library. We do the same thing on the front end using Elm Review. Uh, and in fact, Elm is, you know, again, it's such a powerful language. The bots can propose the changes outright and you can just accept them, which has been nice. So we leverage a lot of code gen, automated code review, code manipulation to give us more leverage. Uh, so that's been great. And two other techniques that we use are maybe a little bit more social. I'm a big fan. I think the team is a fan and I'd be curious if other organizations do this. One is we've instituted a policy of rubber ducking in Slack channels. So every engineer has essentially what amounts to a public engineer's notebook. Uh, so RD rubber ducking dash Aaron as an example. And day to day, I just sort of you know vocalize what it is I'm working on as I'm working on it. And the reason we do this is because in a distributed organization across time zones, across concerns, you know we still get together for stand up in various meetings to kind of discuss what we're working on. But if I am working on something that's pretty technically involved and I get to a place where I'm stuck, I want to pull someone in. Well, I don't need to spend time 
bringing them up to speed synchronously on what it is I've been working on, I can just at them at that point in my rubber ducking channel and either right then and there or, you know, at their own convenience, depending on, you know, time zones and their workload can get up to speed and provide me answers to unstick me. So we try to get this culture of developing in the open air publicly because it accelerates collaboration when we need it. And we've even taken this a step further where every story that gets created in our issue tracker, so we use Clubhouse, automatically gets a Slack room spun up around it, automatically synchronizes data from Clubhouse into it as changes are made, pulls participants in and out of that channel. So people can have very free form, long discussions about the code, about the feature in a space that doesn't pollute the story, that doesn't pollute you know, a popular channel like dev, but allows people really to keep establishing a shared context. So we lean very heavily into this kind of sharing your work in public to, you know, aid collaboration and, you know, make for a better product. Aaron, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thank you. It's, it's been mine.